If you're listening to this episode in real time, it's now the first week of October, a time for breaking out your cozy sweaters, sipping on a pumpkin-flavored beverage, and cozying up for a little fall reading. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of Halloween, but I know that this week is also a kickoff for many of all things spooky. In the spirit of October spookiness, today's episode is all about scary stories to tell in the dark, the first title in a series of the same name, written by Alvin Schwartz and published in 1981. I tended to avoid all things scary when I was growing up, but these books were iconic for so many kids in the 80s and 90s, and they made their way back into the pop culture conversation more recently with the 2019 release of the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark movie. On today's show, you'll hear my guest Gail and I talk about what we expected this spooky little book to be versus what it actually was. Spoiler alert, I really had no idea what I was getting into. We also talk about the historical significance of Schwartz's scary stories and the impressive research he embarked on to pull them together, consider how our definitions of scary change over time, and ask ourselves whether it's more frightening to read about super spooky things that would never actually happen to you, or slightly less spooky things that are very, very real. We swap notes on which stories we found scariest and wonder about why so many kids enjoy being scared in the first place. Basically, what you're about to hear is a conversation between two people who generally don't like scary stuff, unless there are snacks involved, but are very open to figuring out what all the fuss is about. Episode 65's guest is Gail Galligan, the creator of the New York Times best-selling graphic novel adaptations of Dawn and the Impossible 3 and Christie's Big Day by Anne M. Martin. That's right, listeners, we're talking about the Babysitter's Club here. When Gail isn't making comics, she enjoys knitting, reading, and spending time with her adorable pet rabbits. She lives in Pleasantville, New York. Learn more about her work at gailasora.com and follow her on Instagram at robochai. Follow the SSR podcast on Instagram at SSRpod, which is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook by searching the SSR podcast. If you're someone who's into Instagram stories, I'd love to challenge you this week to share that you're listening to SSR on your Instagram stories. Take a screenshot of this episode on whatever platform you're using, then share it with your friends, tagging SSRpod before you post. It makes such a big difference to the pod when people are spreading the word both in real life and on social media. Plus, it makes me really happy. You can also help spread the word by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes. Finally, if you'd like to take one more step in supporting the pod, check out our merch at www.ssrpodcast.com shop and visit www.patreon.com ssrpodcast to learn more about becoming a Patreon sponsor. As a patron, you contribute a few dollars per month to the production of the podcast, like as little as one dollar, and you get some awesome exclusive rewards in return. I'm so grateful for the growing community we have on Patreon already. Your contributions make it possible for me to do what I do with SSR, and you've made a huge impact in helping the show grow. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to check out the cool things my friends are doing over at Libro.fm. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. Why not listen to some of the titles on your October TBR? Speaking of October, it's time to tell some scary stories. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school-era abbreviation for Silent Sustained Reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. 
So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Gail. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you for having me, Allie. How are you today? I'm great. We're spending Friday afternoon together. It feels a little bit like the last day of school. Like I've kind of had one of those weeks. And so I'm like, this is sort of my last big thing I have to do before the weekend. I get to do before the weekend. (gasps) And so I feel like we're kind of like, I feel a little punchy, you know, before we start this conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm kind of actually on the opposite end of that boat where I'm prepping to go to a wedding and then a convention. So this is my cool, chill friend chat time. (laughs) Well, here here we are having a cool, chill friend chat. This is like one of the only weekends over the next like 10 weeks that I don't have a wedding. So I totally understand the mindset that you're in. We are talking today about scary stories to tell in the dark. Couldn't be like a more opposite topic than like a wedding weekend. And to kick us off, I believe you chose this book for us to talk about. And so I'd love to know a little bit more about why you suggested it, why we picked it. Listeners, as you're listening to this, it's now October 1st. Here's an interesting behind the scenes. It's actually August 16th as Gail and I are recording it. But you're listening to it on October 1st, and we thought it would be kind of a fun kickoff to Halloween month to talk about scary stories to tell in the dark. But Gail, I would love to know why you wanted to talk about this book in the series. I actually had never read this book as a child, which I kind of had, uh, you know, an underlying shame about it. like everyone was into this the movie's coming out now everyone's like yeah that book I like a lot I'm just going oh oh no have I been left out so I really just was excited at this opportunity to check it out have a good time read the book and get a little bit scared sometimes I feel all of that so I embarrassingly didn't know that the movie was coming out this month until like well after you and I booked this interview. (laughs) Um, So then I started to see the trailer playing and I was like, wow, like that's so crazy. What a coincidence. And here, of course, you were way more plugged in than I am. And probably like that was a big reason why you wanted to talk about it. But the trailer for this movie is everywhere. And I've started posting about the book on my Instagram and everybody's like very excited that we're talking about it, given the fact that the movie just released. So um, it released on August 9th, 2019. I would think by the time this episode drops, it'll be out of theaters, maybe available on demand for those who really want to be scared. I do not plan to see it. A thing about me, everyone, I'm not great at being scared. And that's probably why I never read this book as a kid. But just like you, Gail, I kind of always felt like I was behind. This definitely was a book that I remember kids talking about. And there was like always like sort of this undercurrent of gossip about the series when I was in elementary school. But I like I would not touch it with a 10 foot pole when I was a kid. Yeah, it felt like a little bit illicit almost. It's like, ooh, this scary thing that parents don't want you to read, you know, I was like, oh, no, same. I don't want that. either. (laughs) Yeah, mom's totally right. Like who wants to be scared? I really like didn't know what to expect. So when the book arrived, I was first of all struck by how tiny it is. The copy that I have, which is not one of the ones with the amazing, you know, more famous illustrations, unfortunately. Listeners, the edition that came out originally in 1981 has like these beautiful, famous illustrations. And then they released a second set of editions, I think, for the 30th anniversary of the book in 2011 that people are not thrilled about. So it's this like fully illustrated book with big text. And mine, I believe my actual like book portion only goes to page 99. So I was like, whoa, look at this. Like me being wild with the short book because I tend to read a lot of really long books for SSR. And for context, this is a series. So 
There are three installments, and I read just the first installment. There was one published in 1981, and that was the original Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. There was one published in 1984, and that was called More Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Really creative follow-up title. The copy that was published in 1991 was called Scary Stories 3, More Tales to Chill Your Bones. Uh, Again, like really creative follow-up titles. But I was amazed, first of all, by how short it was. And I don't know what I was expecting. I think maybe I was thinking it would be more like a novel. Like, I was thinking it would be more in, like, the vein of a Goosebumps kind of thing. And so when I opened it and I actually started reading it, I was like, oh, wow, this is, like, totally different than what I would have expected and totally different, really, than anything that we've read for SSR before. So that's pretty cool. It is, yeah. I, like, I feel like I built up the idea of this book in my mind, kind of like you, where I was expecting this big, long, spooky, like, entire narrative. And so when I, I got the Kindle edition... <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like so compressed. And the first thing you get to when you open the book is a section of things to scare your friends with. I wasn't expecting that level of interaction, you know? Yeah, that's that's a great way to describe it. So the stories are kind of categorized into different themes, which I liked. I thought that that kind of like broke it down really nicely because each story is only like two or three pages. And so I think that if they had just been one on top of the other on top of the other without any sort of structure, it would have been like, easier to get lost in it. Uh, One thing that I really enjoyed is that I literally read this book in like one sitting in a night. And so that was kind of fun and an experience that I don't have very often. But I think the fact that we had sort of these different designations of like, as you said, ways to scare your friends and like all these other themes that made it really fun to read but I didn't expect it to have this level of interaction either and that made it sort of fun and in my research about the author Alvin Schwartz his sort of life before becoming this like famous horror guy was as sort of like a literary aggregator that we don't really see anymore in 2019 so he's written parenting books and like arts and craft guides and joke books and like pun books and that's kind of what the structure of this book reminded me of was those like joke books did you have those like weird your yes. joke books when you were a kid. That's like what it made me think of. riddles to like confuse your parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what this book made me think of. And so it made a lot of sense when I was researching him after I read the book that like that's sort of the world that he comes from. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, again, I really didn't know a ton about this book going in. So, like, getting to the end of the book and realizing, oh, he's an aggregator of stories. He did research for this book. These are things that people told each other. I had no idea about any of that. Yeah, the amount of research that went into these books is amazing. So on Wikipedia, at least. I mean, take that for what you will. But um, (laughs) he spent more than a year on each of the three books. And when you look at how short this book is and the fact that all of the stories are compiled from urban legends and folktales from like different cultures, it is kind of hard to believe that he spent that much time on each book. But I think it just goes to show that he really took a lot of pride in like these stories coming from deeply embedded tales from all over the world. And he also just spent hours and hours and hours combing through libraries and that's how we put all of this together and so I don't know I think it can be easy sometimes and I'm guilty of it to like look at a book like this and sort of turn your nose up a little and be like these were just stories that were slapped together they're so short but learning more about sort of like the inspiration behind them and the work that he had to do to pull it all together it was pretty impressive and uh, I misjudged it for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a little piece of history, I guess. Yeah. Another thing that struck me, honestly, like being someone who's not as much into horror, like I go onto the no sleep subreddit sometimes and scare myself a little bit, but, um, I wasn't really expecting this kind of clinical level of description where he's Mm -hmm. just kind of telling you a story straightforwardly. Like you would tell a kid how something happened, like step by step, you know, like Jeanette said a thing and then she walked over and saw some bones, you know? (laughs) Yeah, totally. Rather than 
like adding that um, layer of horror adjectives or adverbs that I'm expecting to see. It was still spooky. <laughs> it was still spooky, but it was very straightforward. So sort of like stepping away from this particular book for a second, you mentioned yeah. that you're not a horror person. Does that mean like you never were into scary stuff as a kid either? Are you into scary stuff at all now? Like, will you watch a horror movie if it's on? I basically um, will watch a horror movie with my husband if he says we will get a tasty treat afterwards. I promise. I promise. <laughs> I love that so, attitude. Yeah. yeah, that's a good sort of like bar to set for yourself and watching things that you don't want to watch. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I feel like afterwards I appreciate them because, you know, I love storytelling. I love picking stuff apart. But at the same time, I know that in bed that night, my eyes are going to be wide open. I'm going to have a hard time. Did you watch anything scary as a kid? Because it really was like, I do think it was almost the signifier of like being cool when you were growing up. Like if you were like awesome enough to allow yourself to be scared. And that was totally not something that I ever did. And I wonder if there are some people who like as adults don't like scary stuff, but kind of like sucked it up as kids to sort of like be part of that group. That's so interesting. Yeah, I feel like definitely part of it today is that I didn't do that as a kid. I remember when I was maybe six years old, I woke up, I went downstairs, my parents were up watching a movie. and I was like, Oh, I'm gonna be cool and hang out with them. And they were watching Eddie Murphy's A Vampire in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, which is a super, super weird movie. And the only thing I remember about it was that the vampire had a sidekick whose body parts kept on falling off. So that that messed me up real good. And I didn't try again until The Ring when I was like 15. <laughs> I, to this day, have never seen The Ring. I've never seen The Exorcist. I've seen Signs and I've seen like the village. I've seen a few, but I I do tend to stay away from scary. And I know that means that I've missed out on a lot of like pivotal pop culture moments, but I have now read scary stories to tell in the dark. And as listeners know, I finally read Goosebumps for the first time last year for the podcast. So I feel like I'm kind of catching up, at least on the stuff that I should have been aware of as a kid. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting. I feel like you end up getting a lot of that via osmosis anyway. Yeah, that's true. I did find so many many interesting things online about like what an important touchstone this series is and sort of like collectively these three books have sort of like defined a generation of kids I would assume especially in like the late 80s or early 90s and we started talking a little bit about the tone and the structure you mentioned how it's like so straightforward and to the point and I I think that it's worth talking a little bit more about that because I found a really interesting article in geek.com about sort of like the formula that Alvin Schwartz used to write these so I'm going to share a little bit from that article. He talks about how when they don't run more than a few pages, it sort of adds to the viral, quote unquote, nature of these books. Like viral obviously meant something different back when these books were written than it does now. But the article talks a little bit about how like they resemble really just folktales. Like they're very efficient. The stories walk you through the setup and sort of like the basic nature of what's going on. Um, And then you get to the quote unquote gruesome punchline very quickly. And again, another quote, there is no wasted motion. I think that's a really great way to describe it. And for me, as somebody that reads a lot of novels, it sort of was like weird to transition into this book just because I'm so used to like a certain kind of tone and a certain kind of structure and longer books. But by like the third, fourth, fifth story, I realized like, oh, this is just like, this is just the format. This is the formula. And this is how he's moving through the stories. Exactly. Yeah. Like it definitely felt more like the intention of the book was to say, hey, here's a story that you can definitely remember and share. Like they didn't waste space 
nice because they knew like the the quicker you can latch onto something, the more you'll remember to share with your friends later. And that was the goal as opposed to scaring one person in bed at night, you know? Yeah, it's quite literally scary stories to tell in the dark. Like you are supposed to tell them. And I just don't think I picked up on that. And I also think that sort of like all the buzz going on right now with the movie, I I haven't watched the movie, as I said, I I read somewhere that it's sort of this like anthology, this interconnected anthology approach. But obviously in seeing the trailers for the movie, I could only assume that it's like more of like a through line through one story. But like the book itself is told as like, no, here's like a bunch of things that you can share with your friends at a sleepover or like some other moment. um, And you can learn them like they're not that hard to memorize. Exactly. Yeah. Like one, one story was just, Hey, if you sit down in a circle and pass around some gross food and touch it, you're going to pretend it's a body now have fun. I'm just Oh no. Yeah, that was I my favorite. Yeah. That was my favorite. I loved it. Because it was like super interactive and it reminded me of things that you would have read in like a mag. Like I remember being a kid and I was subscribed to like American Girl magazine and obviously that exact activity wouldn't be in American Girl magazine, but the sort of conceit of like, we're going to tell you like the steps to do to have a fun game with your friends and it's going to be hilarious or funny or scary or whatever. Um, and just having it laid out step by step, that really kind of like brought me back to reading those kinds of things as a kid and I really liked it. Yeah, same, same. Like, I remember my mom peeled some grapes once, like, eyeballs, am I right? I was like, well, what are we doing? <laughs> You're like, mom, this yeah, wasn't exactly. my idea, but cool. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. And that that was interesting to me as well, the feeling that uh, even though I hadn't read this book, a lot of it had ended up permeating my life in some way or another, um, which I wasn't really expecting. Yeah, I think that's very true, just because I do remember, like, just the concept of people telling scary stories in the dark or at night like that doesn't just come from nowhere and I remember being a kid and like you know lights go out at a slumber party and everybody's just laying there in their sleeping bags and like kind of talking and then there's always that one kid that's like let's tell scary stories and it's weird because I think as a kid you just assume that like that's what people do but it had to come from somewhere and it's from books like this and I'm sure that nuggets of those stories came from this book. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Which of the stories did you find scariest? Ooh, oh boy. There's I think 27, I believe. Yeah, there there are a number of stories. I wrote some down because I knew I would forget. <laughs> me too. For me, I think the one that I was just genuinely the most wrapped up in was a story about um, the white satin evening gown. Yes. In it, there's a girl who wants to go to a big dance but can't afford a dress so she goes to rent one from a pawn shop this beautiful white satin evening gown see title and she goes to the dance everyone thinks she looks so amazing she has a great time she spends all night just dancing it up but starts to feel ill bad she goes home goes to bed and fucking dies (laughs) it turns out that the dress was sold to the pawn shop by an embalmer that embalming fluid like seeped in as she sweated and killed her and that felt just plausible enough and i was so invested in this girl's happiness i was just you know distressed i i totally agree because i think that story more than a lot of the others i felt like i sort of had a foothold in it in terms of like relating to her there aren't a lot of female characters or a lot of female protagonists in these stories and the ones that are in the book like I didn't find had that much description but this girl in particular I was like okay I understand her we're learning about what motivates her and what she's excited about she really wants to look beautiful at the dance and you know I certainly relate to that and so I felt like much more connected to her than I did a lot of the other protagonists and so it was like very upsetting to me to like learn that there was this creepy backstory to the dress she was wearing that was supposed to just make her feel beautiful 
I know. Yeah. It's just, why can people have a good time? <laughs> Let the girl dance, honestly. <laughs> it's true, though. And that is an interesting thing um, that you mentioned that I didn't really pick up on until you said it just now, where, yeah, usually it's a story about man walking, getting scared, or a boy digging something up. There's a woman in one, but the story is mostly about her dead lover, I guess. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Because I think the other one I started to talk about was the one where a trucker kept on flashing its high beams at a woman who was driving and she was freaking out like why is he doing this am i being stalked am i going to die and i also like that resonated with me as well right so it's like the other women there's some damsel in distress stuff going on like that woman and then there's like some old women stuff happening which i think is like very common in horror because you kind of can draw the parallel to like that very typical image of a witch um right and so i think like maybe the girl in the white satin dress was sort of the only one who didn't fall very clearly into one of those two categories like she was just a girl trying to have a good time trying to go out on the town trying to have fun with her friends obviously that didn't exactly work out so well but I think she's sort of like different from the more like stereotypical women in horror kind of roles that we see in the other stories that's very true yeah no nobody chased her she just made a bad dress pick and that's (laughs) happened to to all of us I mean I've made some bad dress picks of course thankfully not in this particular way but I get it and Another one that really freaked me out, so now I'm, I'm paging through the book, listeners. Apologies yeah. for any page turning. Um, but one of the ones that I found scariest was Room for One, about the guy who sees the hearse that's, like, full of people, and the driver rolls down the window and says, there's room for one more. And then he waits a minute and drives away. And the next day, the guy, whose name is Blackwell, is, like, telling his friends about what happened. And they're like, no, that couldn't have happened. It was just a dream. And later in the day, he waits for an elevator to take him back down to the street when he's at work but it's like super crowded as many elevators are and one of the passengers in the elevator looks out and calls to him there is room for one more and it was the driver of the hearse and then the doors close the elevator starts down and there's like shrieking and screaming and the elevator crashes and everybody in the elevator dies and it super freaked me out because it was sort of this combination of like parallels in real life and maybe a bad dream and it seemed similar to how you felt about the white satin dress like it felt just reasonable enough to me to be scared like an elevator could crash. You could have an elevator accident. And maybe it's because I ride an elevator every day in my apartment building. But there's something about sort of this like character showing up both in the hearse and then showing up in the elevator, it being the same guy, just definitely gave me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, it's kind of that, that scene in The Matrix where he sees the cat again, like, wait a second. Yeah. Because um, that, that definitely does happen sometimes. Yeah. There was another hearse reference. There was like the hearse song. Yes. Which I thought was interesting. So you actually have the sheet music to a song. So I guess if you could, if you can read music or you know how, you can like hum along with the melody. That one was like, it almost felt like too close to home. Like it was, it was this like very graphic description of like what it's like to be in a hearse. Yeah. Was that the one with the jelly toes? Because that turn of phrase keeps on sticking with me. Yeah. I hate to repeat it for you, but I'm going to. They eat your (laughs) eyes. They eat your nose. They eat the jelly between your toes. A big green worm with rolling eyes crawls in your stomach and out your eyes. Your stomach turns a slimy green and pus pours out like whipping cream. Gross. You spread it on a slice of bread and that's what you eat when you are dead. Yeah, if I read that when I was a kid, I would have remembered that for a very long time. Yeah, it's so weird. Specific words, yeah. And I do wonder, like, obviously I was reading this book in one sitting and I did have a thought because I was reading it at night in bed. And I had a thought, 
especially before I started reading, when I didn't really know what I was getting into, where I was like, should I read this at night? Like, is this a good idea? And it ended up being fine. I mean, I have much realer kinds of nightmares as an adult that have nothing to do with, like, (laughs) jelly between your toes. But I was thinking a little bit about sort of just the evolution that we go through as humans, where, like, this stuff would have scared the shit out of me as a kid. It would have kept me up at night. I would have remembered these kinds of lines, and it would have stuck with me in such a different way. Whereas now, as an adult, I'm able to divorce myself so much from it and kind of laugh about it a little bit differently. And this probably just seems very obvious, because as we get older, of course we're like less afraid of things that aren't real but I do think it's worth noting because I think these books probably kept a lot of kids even into their teens awake into the night and as an adult I was you know able to just kind of like breeze through it late at night and then set it aside and go to bed exactly yeah no it's super true I'm not sure what it is or why but I felt like I have these visceral memories just of imagery from books I read as a kid just Mm -hmm. because it came to me at such a specific point in my life Um, especially especially picture books you just get a very specific feeling from like an artist's style Mm -hmm. so yeah this book would have messed with me yeah you do understand like my goodness yeah the illustrations and I wish did you did you have like full illustrations on the kindle or how did that I did yeah yeah they they included them as images and they are absolutely gorgeous in the most creepy way like everything's very like soft grays with a bit of dark to black very graphite like kind of like gentle and foggy with just enough shifting of detail that things seem unreal in the uncanny valley this is going to kill you kind of way. So like for the the white sand dress, the image is just of a dress hanging and there's a shadow behind it, but the shadow extends to become a foot. That's spooky. Oh, that is spooky. Yeah. Well, this part probably won't surprise you, but this book has been challenged by many people and a lot of people don't want it to be in libraries or in schools, et cetera, et cetera. It was the number one most challenged series, according to the ALA in the 90s, replaced by Harry Potter in the 2000s. Um, But it was still on the list. I believe it was number seven on the list in the aughts. So a lot of people want these out of libraries in particular. But one of the reasons that's most cited for these challenges is the illustrations because they are so spooky. They add like a whole other level to the scary stuff that you're getting in the text itself. That's so interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I found a lot of information about the challenges to the books, and I'm, I'd love to share them. So there was a Seattle mom in 1993 who gave an interview to the Chicago Tribune, and she said of the series, why are we subjecting our children to this kind of violent material? If these books were movies, they'd be R-rated because of the graphic violence. <laughs> There's no moral to them. The bad guys always win. And I have a few things to say about this. And I say this as somebody who like would not have been chomping at the bit for a scary book street as a kid. Like It certainly wouldn't have mattered to me if like I couldn't get these books in my school library but I just think a lot of what she's saying is wrong I don't find that the bad guys always win in this book like right the books are so superficial that like there's no way really for the bad guys to win the story just ends and yes often like this greater idea of evil might win out which is sort of the point of a scary story but I don't feel like we learn enough about the quote-unquote bad guys in any one of the stories for me to feel like there's a winner or a loser it just is yeah I don't know that a lot of these stories necessarily present a moral viewpoint one way or another like I think about for example um Gosh, this story about the man who's walking mm. sees another man. They both get scared of each other, and then they're just scared. That's it. That's the entire story. There, there's not really a good guy or a bad guy there. But there's no like no. human winner. Like I, I find in the stories that like I don't 
walk away feeling like there was a victor. And I also think that there's a greater conversation to be had about whether it's important that all kids' books have a moral. And I've talked about this with several SSR listeners, and we talk about it sometimes in my comments and on my blog. Do kids' books need to have a moral? Is it okay for them to just be fun? For me, it's an interesting question with respect to this series in particular, because as somebody that doesn't love scary things, I don't see how this series would be just like casual fun for a kid reader. So (laughs) in that case, I'm like, maybe there should be a moral, but stepping back and thinking about like the greater population, what they might think is just fun and enjoyable to read. I think it's okay. Like these are books to be read on Halloween. And, you know, I, I don't know that there needs to be like this greater lesson around them. But I understand that like there are more perhaps like conservative families or conservative communities who would feel that if there's not going to be a moral to a story, then it at least shouldn't be like freaking terrifying to their kids. <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel like I have a few feelings on this words. I guess number one, if you're worried about something like that, read a book with your kid and talk about it. You can always have your own discussion with your child about what this means to you and what you would do in a situation. Um, But as for me personally, I feel like um, regardless of the overall moral arc of a book, I want to see that actions have consequences. If a, if a kid does a murder, hopefully that's a, a bad thing and they like their life goes awry for that reason, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think there's something to be said about the fact that like it's important for kids to see that like bad things happen and what is useful is A, those conversations with adults that you mentioned and also like, you know, this book isn't maybe a great example of it because the stories are shorter but I do think often in books for kids that aren't like inherently quote unquote moral, there's consequences often for the bad actions or for sort of like the mistakes that are made so it's not necessarily about being like a moral character but it's just about demonstrating like how life works and that's okay something else that i thought was interesting about the this particular complaint that i mentioned in the chicago tribune is the graphic violence i do agree that there's some pretty like visceral gory images in the book but again these stories are so short that it's hard for me to like agree with the fact that they're graphic violence I mean, they're very brief. They're very efficient. There's not a ton of adjectives or adverbs. Like, you're kind of getting the headline about what happens in each of these scary stories. But I just find it hard to agree with the fact that, like, it's this, like, super graphic, violent stuff when he's so economical with his words as an author. True, yeah. I don't know if that's just a, like, context of the times thing or what, but they definitely don't read to me as graphic at all. Yeah, I feel like for me, like, if there was anything about flaying... Right. <laughs> oh, that or, word. Ooh. I know. Ugh, no, no, thank you. Or, or describing, like, the, you know, the, the nature of bodies in a, a more extended way, like you said, then I feel like that would have hold more water. Yeah. And I, I do understand the comparison to, like, an R-rated movie, and I think that that sort of comes down to, like, the parents a little bit and I know that obviously like not all kids are lucky enough to have parents that are able to be like present with them all the time and to um, be available enough to sort of like monitor what they're reading and watching and and taking in I also think that like if a kid is is and maybe it's different now because kids have access to like so much stuff online Mm -hmm. 
But I do think it's a little bit of a different conversation now. And maybe that's why I find this particular complaint like so hard to wrap my head around because it's like, as far as I can tell, and I don't have kids at this point, like if a kid wanted to watch an R-rated movie in 2019, they could probably go watch an R-rated movie whether their parents knew about it or wanted them to do it or not. And so I feel the same about this book. Like if a kid wants to read something scary, they're going to find a way to read it whether online or in a book. And I would rather them read a book like this that's like sort of a more classic work of literature by this author that's been like really well respected and, you know, this like cultural touchstone. I don't know. I, I guess our perspective probably is different in 2019 because this complaint was from 1993. And so I guess it's hard to compare, but it's just hard for me to wrap my head around that exact logic, I guess. Yeah, if that complaint came forward today, I feel like it would not have that same weight, I don't think it would be taken as seriously. Um, there is so much else out there that is very specifically explicit. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about, like, do we think that kids who might pick this book up in 2019 would even find it that scary? That's a great question. I feel like it probably depends on that age range. Like, yeah. four to six? Yeah, maybe. But when, once you get into your between years no, no this is a laughing book <laughs> yeah and I was trying to like take myself back to the 90s and like think about like what I what other things I would have seen and had access to at the age that I would have read this book and I I think that it would have been fundamentally more terrifying to me relative to a kid like of the same age in 2019 who like has seen like so many more things than I did at that age um and that kind of makes me a little bit sad we we talked about a book called running out of time on the podcast a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and um, it was one of my favorites when I was a kid and the whole concept if you're not familiar is this girl thinks that she's living in like Indiana in the 1840s and it turns out that she's actually living in sort of this like amped up colonial Williamsburg in the 90s okay. where like She's basically living in, like, a human zoo, and all of these people come and, like, watch her and her family live as if they're in the 19th century. And I was obsessed with this book as a kid. I read it over and over and over again. And it's one of the few books that, upon reread, I was, like, really disappointed in. And we talked on the episode about how, like, kids in 2019 are probably so much less impressed by that premise because it's, like, people vlog and people watch reality TV. And so this whole idea of, like, being party to somebody's life 24-7 is sort of like whatever. But in the 90s, I had never even thought that this would be a thing. And so it kind of blew my mind. And so I was thinking about that conversation a little bit while I was reading Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark and just kind of trying to like figure out maybe when things would have shifted for kids. Because it's it's the same book. It's just different kids reading it. It's so true. Yeah. And that does make me think like, I know kids have their own scary stories today. Like you've got your your slender mans and your so on and so such. I am not privy to that that portion of child talk. Those tweens, <laughs> what the tweens are I doing. Know. Come on, Gail. I know that you're going up with the tweens. I can't floss. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be really interested to see what what someone collecting stories in the same way today would come up with and how that would read, you know? Would it be banned from libraries? Listeners, I know a lot of your parents and teachers and librarians, if you have kids in your life that have read scary stories to tell in the dark, Gail and I want to know how they processed it. Like, were they afraid? Were they, like, super cool about it? Because I am interested. I think it's, it's, like, worth talking about because these are sort of, like, classic 
spooky tropes like skeletons and, you know, like undertakers coming for you and people dying in white satin dresses in the middle of the night and like creepy men like walking down the road with their dogs and that sort of thing. These like very classic images. And I just don't know how impactful those kinds of images are in the 21st century when like CGI makes things, makes everything so much scarier and like we can just like build much freakier looking visuals. And I just, I just think it's interesting to consider. It is, absolutely. I also found an interesting anecdote while I was researching about a kid who basically ran like an underground library as a kid where he like had a single copy of this book that his mom gave him and he like traded it around the whole school and he had um, this book and he also had a Stephen King book and a few others that like people in his school thought were too risque and he was like the holder of all of those books and got to like swap them around. That is the coolest kid in the universe. Oh my goodness. I want to be friends with him as an adult. He's probably really awesome. Yeah, get the good books. To our conversation before about like whether or not these are still cool, um, I did find a quote from an anonymous librarian who said, I don't see scary stories going out of style anytime soon. It's something of a rite of passage for kids and their librarians who have to talk to scared kids' parents, which is funny. (laughs) And I wonder if like this movie coming out is going to give this book and this series like a new life I can't imagine that that many little kids are going to see the movie I would assume it's rated at least PG-13 but maybe like teens and tweens are gonna get excited about it and then just like read the book for fun I could see that yeah especially if their parents or guardians remember that book fondly like I could see that being kind of like a hey I liked this please read it let's talk about it you know yeah <laughs> there's another story that I feel like we need to talk about because this is the one that I think scared the shit out of me the most oh yeah it's the one called The Thing um it's about the two friends, Ted and Sam, you know, just two guys being dudes. And they spend a lot of time together. And they're, like, sitting on a fence just chatting. Just Listeners, just so you know, these stories are so short that I'm essentially just, like, reading the story as I summarize for you. Like, that's how to the point each of these stories is. I'm scanning them and basically giving you the summary. It might even be taking me longer to give you a summary than it would if if I just like read the story word for word. So there's some interesting context. So they're sitting (laughs) on a fence and like hanging out and there's a field across the road and they see something crawl out of the field. Um, And I think it's gone and then it disappears and it's like super scary. And finally, like after some back and forth, like the thing disappears and then comes back and disappears and comes back. But it's just this thing that's described as wearing black pants, a white shirt, and black suspenders and they walk up and they see that it's a skeleton just like a dressed skeleton in an outfit Um, and they look at it and scream and they run away and the skeleton now follows them and when they get to Ted's house they just like kind of watch the skeleton stays in the road and disappears but a year after that Ted gets sick and dies and the night that he dies uh, Sam looks at him and he looks exactly like the skeleton they'd seen a year earlier that really shook me to put it as the kids would yeah it's like that and also that was one of the first illustrations that just genuinely concerned me i don't know if you can see this at all oh that's terrifying that's much scarier than the one in my new Ooh, that is scary (laughs) real spooky it's just um kind of a, a light silhouette of a man like the eyes are just really rendered in he's kind of staring blankly out at you and his like lips are kind of drawn away in that dying skeleton sort of way where his teeth are bare it is distressing. So I saw that and knew I was going to be in for a good time. That was a short but weird story, yeah. For me, that was the one that felt like at its core, like it was sort of the most 
scary because I think it's like a skeleton is obviously like a very intense representation of of death and it's like very morbid and it's a very classic kind of horror trope and then this idea that like your best friend would die and when you see him after his death he looks exactly like the skeleton that you ran into a year ago like that was just very scary to me what I'm curious about and I'd love to know your thoughts so I I found myself at the end of a lot of the stories not so much that one because I felt like that one sort of had such like a firm conclusion to it like Ted died and he looked like the skeleton and that's the end of it a lot of the other stories at the end of them I wanted more like I felt like it I and maybe again because it's because of the kinds of books that I usually read and the sort of reader that I am which as listeners know I love like characters like I really like to get in on characters and to learn a lot about them and so I think I found myself if anything in a lot of the stories just having a hard time getting invested in like the scary stuff that was going on because I was like but I want to know who you are like who (laughs) is this person who's being haunted like what's their family like like what's at stake for them but I also just felt like because the stories were so short like some of them I felt like it was great that they were so brief because they just that was so punchy and like you got to the point really quickly but there were others where I just felt like it wasn't as satisfying what would you say to that it's true yeah I can definitely feel that I feel like yeah partially because I am used to being you know brought slowly into a story begin to invest so you can be real sad about it later yeah but um, this kind of expected you to do that legwork on your own Mm -hmm. um, which was interesting because it also kind of gave the stories a similar feeling that I get when I'm reading um, books for children where they say here is a premise we're just gonna roll with it like a family eats a toe nobody asks a question you know what I mean yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's just yeah, what happened. Yeah. That's it. Of course. Yeah. Which sometimes definitely took me out in terms of this, how how invested or scared I felt, where I was too busy saying, wait, wait, tell me more about the toe, when they were just like, and then somebody died, you know? And I hadn't really thought about this before, and maybe it's because, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, that like I didn't quite understand that this was intended to be like an interactive book, where like you actually read the stories to your friends or your family or whatever. I wonder if part of the reason that Alvin Schwartz didn't necessarily think that these books required all of this extra stuff is that his goal was that kids would actually be reading them out loud, sharing them with friends and would like add their own backstory to things or like add their own language to it because these are like so bare bones. Haha, <laughs> pun. Um, <laughs> didn't plan that, but it worked. <laughs> They're so bare bones that like kids could really put all kinds of scary spins on it. And so maybe that's how as a child listening to a story like this, you would get more invested because your friend or your brother or your cousin or whatever is injecting it with all of this other meaning. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, that collaborative component. They're basically uh, Dungeons and Dragons setups. Yeah, totally. (laughs) It's like, let me add more. Like, let me tell you exactly what's actually, like, I can just see like, my friends, we didn't really tell scary stories, but if we did, I can see them, like, creating, like, families and all these other, like, histories for the characters and just building out the scariness even more, which sort of, like, takes what's written on the page to a whole other level. Exactly, yeah. I'd be curious to see, like, I assume that something similar occurred in this movie adaptation. And I almost want to see it now. (laughs) Almost, maybe. I feel like this is one, like, I would have to watch it at home. Like, I couldn't go to a theater. Oh, yeah. Lights on, popcorn out, ready to pause. (laughs) Yeah, I would need multiple snack promises for my husband to watch this one. But I I actually don't know how well it's doing the theater, so I'll have to check it out. It just came out last week as we're recording. So I would imagine there's such a nostalgia factor. Like, there's so many 
many people in their 20s and 30s in particular who grew up with these books and just like the name is so so te- like I don't know even, even having never read the books myself just hearing scary stories to tell in the dark just reminded me so much of like being a kid and all of this like weight around this book that like cool kids are reading and like all the yeah. boys in particular we're talking about um so I think that's probably a great way to get kids and to get kids to get millennials to get adults into the theater oh definitely I want to talk a little bit too about like why kids like to be scared. I found this really interesting article in the New York Times that was written by a horror writer. And he talks about how like he loved scary stories to tell in the dark. And he said that he can't say that like one of these books turned him into a horror writer, but they sort of like awakened in him this interest in this kind of content. And he writes, this adoration baffled my mom. Why did I keep coming back to this horrifying book? At that age, I didn't know how to articulate the effect it had on me. In response to her confusion, I'd open to a page anyone would do and tap on the drawings that's why and then he goes on to talk a little bit about like just sort of the tension of being a kid and like wanting to be scared but not really being allowed to be scared and whether it's like cool or not to expose kids to this kind of scary stuff which you and I talked briefly about and he wraps up the article by saying every child is different exactly right for one is too much for another but speaking for myself as a boy I felt comforted by these pictures in particular if I felt the world could be a frightening place and I did then these drawings these stories offered a kind of validation you're right they seem to say the world is wild that's all I wanted as a child someone to admit that what I felt wasn't ridiculous or wrong so much of the world seemed determined to tell me that everything was fine thank goodness for books like this one that respect me enough to agree that sometimes it wasn't that's so interesting Isn't it? it is I feel like it's a little bit I, I don't think we can generalize and say like yes yeah, the reason that kids like to be scared is because they understand that the world is scary like I think that that's <laughs> sort of maybe taking it a little far for a lot of kids like I totally see what he's saying and I think that that's probably true for a certain type of kid where like it's nice for pop culture and authors and creators in general to like address you in a way that feels a little bit more grown up but I also think that some kids just like think it's sort of thrilling to be afraid it's true yeah like while I never got into horror stories I distinctly remember as a kid there was a period in my life where there was nothing I wanted to do more than climb up to the highest place I could find and then jump off it like that was the best thing in the world to me and I feel like it's that feeling of kind of being um the the king of your own space like getting to go up say I'm gonna jump down now and then knowing that you'll still be safe at the end Mm. Um, but having that moment of, you know, thrilling, controlled fear, as it were. And in reading a book like this, it's like you're taking control and being like, I'm making a decision to read a scary book and like, I can do this myself. And similarly, you're having sort of like the king of your castle experience because you've decided to read the book and like experience it yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then like you mentioned that feeling of kind of, oh, people don't want me to read this and therefore I'm also a rebel. I could see that adding to it a lot for sure. Yeah, that's true. There's always the sort of like, you know, I'm going to do exactly what everybody tells me not to do element. I do think it's interesting that this book is so challenged because it feels sort of cartoony to me. Um, it really does. Like, I can't imagine that you would, like, fight your kid that hard on reading this book just because, like, it feels, it doesn't feel much worse than, like, a scary Disney movie. Like, it's so, it's silly kind of of fear for the most part. It's not these, like, very real kinds of events. It's things that, like, you could watch in a cartoon. And so, again, like, I know everybody's standards and sort of sensitivities are different, but my sense is that it's much scarier to give kids a book about, like, real things that are going on in the world (laughs) or, like, real dangers that could happen to you than to give them this book and be like, here, like, 
here's a little taste of what it's like to be afraid. Uh, you're probably not going to run into any of these exact issues. I don't know. Maybe again, it's just like the way our sensitivities have developed in the 30 years since this book came out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would be really curious to just know like if it would be possible to find one of those arguments from that period in time, like what that would read like. Is it that you haven't read the book fully or that you have and specific concepts like say talking to a kid about death like you don't think they're ready for it i don't know but i don't think that's a decision a library can should have to unilaterally make for all the people who go there yeah yeah i mean i guess i understand it for like certain like belief systems or religious groups like you know i have opinions about that because i think that kids should have access to the kinds of information that's available to everyone and then they can make their own decisions about their belief systems, personal right. opinion. So in that way, I understand, like, if you are a parent coming from that sort of, like, a structure, maybe you would have feelings about the specific, like, representations of death and, like, general spookiness that are in this book. But speaking to more mainstream parents, it just doesn't seem, like, worthwhile to, like, fight kids so hard on reading a book about things that, like, are never going to happen to them. I don't know. It's true. Yeah. What do you mean? A prison escapee with a hook on their hand won't? Yeah, like <laughs> probably not going to happen. I, 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 I could be wrong. Listeners, if you have experienced this, please let me know and I will admit that I'm wrong. But yeah, exactly. Like you're not going to probably, you're probably not going to find yourself in a situation where you see a hearse driving by one day and the driver of the hearse tells you that there's an open seat and then this the next day you try to get into an elevator and the same guy who is the driver of the hearse tells you that there is one open spot in the elevator and then the elevator crashes like it, it's far-fetched in our actual yeah. world so I don't know I again to each their own obviously um I don't have kids and I'm sure once you start parenting children you have no idea what you're doing um <laughs> but it just seems like the fact that it was the top series on that ALA most challenged list surprised me I figured it would be on the list somewhere but the amount of articles that I found just doing a quick Google search about all of the challenges, it surprised me that it was like so fiercely challenged all around the country. Yeah, like if I had to make a guess, this would not even have cracked the top 10, honestly. Oh, interesting. Okay. But just because yeah. it seems like so silly kind of scary? Yeah, yeah. Silly, scary, mild. Like I would have put like Earl Stein's Fear Street like way up there depending on the period of time, you know? Yeah, that's true. I haven't read Fear Street. I did read my first Goosebumps a couple months ago. <gasps> that's right. Yeah, I'm growing. I'm having a lot of personal growth. So would you give this book to a kid in your life? Like, would you recommend it to like younger people in your circle? That's a fair question. Let's see. I think I know a three-year-old right now who I think would enjoy it in a few years. They're probably too much right now. <laughs> a, a little too much for, for a small, small child maybe. But yeah, I feel like once you get to that age where, you know, you're telling gross out stories to your pals you're really interested in the kind of spooky halloweeny stuff i feel like that fits perfectly in there um like maybe like a, a seven-year-old kid you know i feel like seven to ten is kind of like the sweet spot for this age and if yeah. you're like a cool parent who likes to like tell scary stories it would be really fun to like read this with your kid i think yeah oh grab their leg yeah yeah exactly like <laughs> totally freak them out before bed and then like make your partner deal with it after and be like, hey, I'm going to sleep. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Bye. So usually at the end of these episodes, I ask the guest if rereading a book has made them love it more or has it ruined the book for them like relative to when they read it as a kid. But obviously, neither of us read the book as kids. And so in that case, I guess I kind of want to know 
how scary stories to tell in the dark maybe met your expectations or sort of like met the hype that you heard about it when you were growing up and even as you got older? That's fair. Yeah. I feel like, like I mentioned, I definitely built up this idea in my mind of what the book might be like, Mm -hmm. um, just based on how attached to it everybody seemed to be. And I was really surprised coming in to find out that, oh, it's a bunch of very short stories. Oh, they're very clinical. Yes. The illustrations are buck wild and gorgeous. I ended up really liking how different it was from what I expected going in. I really appreciate that this person took so much time to just go around the country collecting all of our stories and presenting them to generations to come. I think that's super duper cool. And even if it didn't chill me to the bone, I really appreciate what it did and I'm glad I read it. I like the way that you summed that up. I think that's that's all fair. And we, you and I, at our age, which you know I'm not going to share, um, we're not the target audience to be scared by this book. So I guess it doesn't really matter that we are afraid. And I think you're right that as sort of like a work, as an artifact, as like a product of all of this work and like research and time that went into it, it's really like a very interesting piece of pop culture. And I'm really glad we got to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So before we jump off, I'd love to know if there's anything else that you've been reading that you would recommend to our listeners. Oh, my heart. Let's see. Well, to start off while I think about more recent stuff, my favorite probably book of all time, which I haven't reread in a little while, um, would be The Crestomancy Quartet by Diana Wynne-Jones. Okay. I don't know if you've read that. I haven't. um, Tell me more. I'll tell you about it. It is a collection of fantasy stories all set in the same universe Mm -hmm. where every time a major event happens in the world, that world splits off into two, one where it happened, one where it didn't. So you have a whole bunch of different worlds, some of which have magic, some of which don't. And one guy at the very top in a government agency making sure that everybody's being cool with each other. So each story is set in one of these different worlds where you find out a little bit more about its circumstances. Like, for example, Guy Fox didn't do something in this world Hmm. or in this world, um, there are mermaids. And then things go awry. The guy shows up and fixes it. It's a fun and hilarious time. I genuinely love these books. That's so cool. I've actually never heard of them before, but I have to look into it because that sounds like a really interesting series. Yeah, absolutely. As for um, more recently, since I'm a cartoonist, I'll recommend a graphic novel. (laughs) Great. Please do. Absolutely. It's called The Prince and the Dressmaker. It's by Jen Wang. And it's the story of a prince who hires someone to make his royal costumes. And at night, he asks her to make dresses for him, the most gorgeous dresses of all time. He asks her to keep it a secret, which really frustrates her because she wants to show off these dresses and become a big dressmaker in her own right. So it's a story of these two people figuring out their own selves and how they want to present themselves to the world. And it's absolutely gorgeous. I love it so much. Sounds very relevant to to sort of the conversations that we're having bigger picture these days. That sounds really great. Really cool. I'm going to research that too. I will include links to both of the books that you mentioned in the show notes for this episode. I will also include a link to Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark for those who want to get spooked this October leading up to Halloween. And I will, of course, include a link to Gail's work, Dawn and the Impossible 3, Christie's Big Day, to your website so that people can check out all the other awesome stuff that you do. Gail, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. It was really fun talking with you about this book that I really have felt for years that I've been missing out on. And I feel like I'm finally like chipping away at some of these like major cultural touchstones that I just chose to miss because I was too afraid when I was little. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. I really had a great time. Maybe the next time we talk, I'll have actually, I don't know, watched The Shining. I don't know. <laughs> we're going to just continue to evolve as humans and we're just going to like push ourselves out of our comfort zones. That's all. That's a great plan. Thank you again. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.